before you can turn around a program and win, it is absolutely critical that you explain to everybody in the program what loses first. And guess what? Everybody knows the answer. It's a matter of actually doing it. But we're just not going to take a magic pill and go out there and do a magic drill and just all of a sudden start winning. Winning is hard at any level. And everybody says they want to win until they have to do what's required because there's really no options. There's requirements. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And welcome to Slapping Glass. Exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome Appalachian State head coach, Dustin Kearns. Coach Kearns is here today to discuss program turnarounds and building winning behaviors, teaching positionless offense, and we talk defending ghost screens and paint to great threes during the always fun start, sub, or sit. Coaches, one of the best ways to help support what we do is by becoming a member of SG+. We now have coaches and staffs from over 40 different countries who are happy to call members, and they get access to SGTV's over 500 detailed breakdown video library by both ourselves and coaches like Stan Van Gundy, Ryan Pannone, Martin Schiller, Josh Schertz, and many more as well as the weekly deep dive newsletter, access to a private coaching community, and much more. For more information, email us at info at slappingglass.com or visit slappingglass.com to sign up today. Thanks for the support. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Dustin Kearns. Coach Kearns, thanks so much for making the time. This is going to be a fun conversation today. Dan, Pat, I am thrilled and honored to be on here with you guys. I think you guys are doing an outstanding job to help grow the game of basketball, to develop coaches. As a coach myself, as a head coach, I look at your stuff every day. And so I'm just thrilled and honored and humbled to be on here. Thank you. Thank you, Coach. I appreciate that. Coach, we want to dive in right away with an area that you've had success and some experience in, and that's turning programs around, taking a program that's struggling and pretty quickly, almost immediately having success that next season or in the the coming seasons. And just really want to dive in on all the ins and outs, the good, the bad, and things that go into a successful team turnaround. And so to start, love to just hear maybe some opening thoughts from you on how you view coming into a team or a program that's been struggling for whatever reason and your role and what you and your staff start to do to attempt that turnaround? I don't know if I have all the answers other than I do have experience with it. You know, we took over Presbyterian that I think it had 13 or 14 losing seasons and we were able to go there and including the season before was five wins and we were able to win 20 in year two. And then we come to App State, eight straight losing seasons, and we were able to win in year one, go to March Madness in year two. And so I do have some experience with it. And some just, you know, sometimes we're just kind of as coaches, that's coaching in the sense you just thrown some situations and you got to pivot, you got to adjust. I think that there's some steps in that process that are very, very critical, but I think every situation is different. And I'll talk about that. I think that at both places, we did some things that were beneficial. One, we really tried to come in and assess 
and identify by conversations with the current players, with even fans, just really anybody I could kind of just talk to and say, why, in your opinion, did this not work? And you get many different answers and you just take a lot of notes. And once again, you kind of just listen and learn. But at some point, you're going to find some kind of matches. You're going to kind of maybe find through people's conversations, maybe a common theme. Hold up. All these people said this reason. We've got to attack this. Because before you can turn around a program and win, it is absolutely critical that you explain to everybody in the program what loses first. It's really, really important to help everybody understand what loses before you just go win. Everybody wants to just come in and just win. Okay, well, let's everybody in this room, everybody in this organization, let's really understand what loses first. And guess what? Everybody knows the answer. It's a matter of actually doing it. And so one thing that we did at both places, Presbyterian App State is with our players in a room, I went up to the board and said, hey, what does a loser act like, talk like, practice like, play like? And it was their answers. Hey, coach, lazy. I wrote it up. Doesn't listen. Wrote it up. Not a team guy. I wrote it up. Different answers at different programs. And that's okay. But the most important thing is they know. And so at the end of the exercise, which maybe there was 15 to 20 characteristics, I simply said, I'm going to leave this up here until you walk through this every single day and you say, you know what? That's not me. That's not who we are because we've got to understand that is who we are right now. And this is what loses, whether we like it or not, you know, because one of those points fingers. So in this room, we can point fingers at who's quote at blame, but like, that's what a loser does. So we're not going to point fingers. And so helping them really understand whether we like it or not, this is who we are right now. All these things on this board is why our program has been losing. And before we start winning, we've really, really got to understand this. And so I want you to walk in here every day and I want you to look at it. And I really want you, you should say to yourself, man, I, that's not who I am. That's not who we are. And when we get to that point, we'll erase it. But we're just not going to take a magic pill and go out there and do a magic drill and just all of a sudden start winning. Winning is hard at any level. Winning is really hard. And everybody says they want to win until they have to do what's required because there's really no options, there's requirements. And so that exercise was very, very critical. And something else, the very first thing that I said to both teams when I got in front of them, and I think this is critical when you take over a program that has not been successful, is you're just simple communication. The first thing that I said to both teams when I got in front of them is, I coach here, you play here, you're my players, and you're never going to feel anything different. And you've all got a fresh start. I don't know anything about you. And that is very, very critical because we had some guys that were just, quote, not having fun, maybe not looking forward to the gym. And now they've got kind of a, a new energy to them, a new environment where they could possibly, hopefully thrive. And I've got some examples of that at both places that are kind of staggering. However, me and my staff came in and both programs never felt like, ah, coach, we're not coaches guys. So we're not going to absolutely not. You are my guys. You play here and I coach here. So you are my guys. We're all in this thing together. And I just thought that that at both places was generally how I felt and they felt it. And so they're like, you know what? I'm excited to come to the gym every day now. I'm excited to work out because I said, you all got a fresh start. Your stats, everything is at zero, zero now. I don't care if you average two points, zero, zero. 
I'll share this and then we'll move on to the next question. And since at Presbyterian, our starting point guard for the previous two years, he made three threes in two years, his freshman and sophomore year. His junior and senior year with us, he made 47. We didn't do anything to his shot form, but he came in and he said, I just felt like truly got a fresh start. He went from two points a game to 12 and it was all confidence. We come to App State, we got a kid that he was going into his senior year. He averaged three points a game. He made 19 threes throughout his career here before. With us in one season, he made 61 and went to 14 a game. And now he's on his third pro contract. It's very rewarding as a coach because truly we have a lot more examples, but those were two examples where those two kids truly got a fresh start and they thrive. When you take over a program, it's very, very critical to genuinely and authentically give everybody a fresh start. It's just very rewarding as a coach to see players have such immediate success and not to mention they also were a part of winning the team. Coach, hearing you talk, it sounds like you know what you're doing is you're going to put the onus on the players because like you said, they know what loses and then you're also going to empower them when you obviously mentioned your two examples of making more three-pointers. What does that look like when you get out of that meeting of writing on the board of telling them you're the coach, that they're your guys? Then what does it kind of look like daily or when you get on the court, like actually living it? And how do you back that up so then guys believe you and you get the buy-in? Yeah, I think that you've got to, one, that is the hard part, you know, in the sense of there's going to be some rainy days. When you take over programs that have had multiple years, you know, once again, I think it was 14 and eight. That's a period that goes deep into a lot of things to flush out. And you've got to try to help them. It's a lot of one-on-one time. It's a lot of player meetings. But also when you get on the court, it's got to be about player development. And so at both places, when we got on the court with guys, it was offensive player development because I wanted those guys excited about coming to the gym. And so what do players like? They want to feel like, hey, I want to get better. And so we didn't come in and start doing defense and things like that. Like We did offensive skill development for months because what we we're trying to do is, hey, listen, we are pouring into you. We're trying to get you better. And then once they saw it, like, well, these guys are spending all this time this week just trying to get me better. And this is fun. These guys really want to get me better because it's easy to say that and then go out there and just start doing defense or five on five. There's going to be some rainy days when you take over a program where they're held to a different standard or you're asking some different things to do a certain way with whether it's communication, whether it's off the court academically, where there's going to be some potential resistance because they're just not used to it. And they don't really quite understand why it's so important. I said this to a coach that took over a program this spring in college basketball who called and said, wow, wow, wow. And I said, listen, the good days will add up. There's going to be some rainy days. You took over a tough program just day by day. Take one day at a time and those good days will add up. And one conversation with one kid one day can help those good days add up. It's not going to be peaches and ice cream. Just have a team meeting and put some stuff on the wall and things are going to just magically change. It's just not that simple. But if you and your staff, and one thing that we try to do at both places is we've talked about a lot early on is we're going to try to lead the league in player relationships. You really, really like going out and spending time and and having lunch. And once again, and then the on-court stuff, offensive player development. I thought that was very, very critical in our success and turnaround because the players really bought into that. And wow, like, we're doing player development again and again and last week and and yes. And that doesn't mean you're not playing pickup and things like that, but 
when we were on the floor with our players for the months, it was all about getting them better. Coach, so many good places to go here. Imagine when you're taking over a program and you're trying to get everybody on the bus. There's going to be people or players that just don't make it with you or that you need to leave behind because there's friction that they bring, whether it's personality friction, whether it's just not the right fit. But what would you do when you had to take over a program and there were inevitably things that you had to move on and you had to cut things out? What were those things that you thought about as a staff? Like these things need to go and they need to go quickly versus, hey, these things can be changed. We can change behavior and bring them with us. Was there anything as far as you and the staff when you looked at those things and needing to move the bus forward? Absolutely. And those are natural. And you know what? I think it's as simply as done as just through communication, clearly explaining daily, whether it's a text in a team chat, whether it's before and after a workout, but just simple reminders, communication, short sound bites of this is who we are. And it's okay. It's not for everyone. Listen, the Miami Heat's not for everyone. There's a lot of NBA players that don't want to go play for the Miami Heat. And that's okay because they don't want to have their body fat measured every day. They don't want to be held to a high standard. But you know what? There's a lot of players that are dying to go to the Heat because they want to be part of it. They've been very consistent. Everybody talks about Miami Heat's culture. And it's real. And so there's going to be some stuff flushed out. There's going to be a person or something that, quotes fall off the bus or change buses. And that's okay. There's going to be some of those decisions. And you know what? Guess what? Some of those are healthy. Some of those need to happen. And I think that as long as they're not emotional, they're calculated and then communicate. And so at both places, one particular personnel player was eventually removed, but it was communicated why. And it wasn't emotional. There was data and things to back it up. And you know what? Once again, you're in that room with them. They understand what loses. When you have to make a tough decision that's for the program and those people that are really about what you want to be about and are really trying to gravitate and be about the right stuff, you know what? They understand. They get it, especially if it's communicated. Coach, what you're talking about, obviously, is can sometimes be a really delicate balance and very difficult conversations, potentially, when you're deciding to move off or move on from someone for whatever reason. But is it something that you've developed over the course of your career and as you've turned teams around that you're quicker to recognize the things that can really kill momentum in your program versus when you maybe, say, first took over and you potentially allowed more things to happen? Or were you more strict earlier and now you've realized, hey, there's things I can change with my staff to hold on to. Is there any balance there of from when you were younger to when you're now and things that you'll allow and think that you can maybe help change? Absolutely. And Dan, I think that that's a really good question and point in the sense of you've got to keep the main thing, the main thing. And I think as coaches, sometimes like the game of basketball and things like that, sometimes it's really not complicated. We make it complicated. And I think that There are some things that maybe identify now or see things now or some behavior, but I do believe you can change and I do think you can adapt. And I think that if a particular young man or a young woman is with 10 or 11 other young people that are aligned with the same things and trying, they can gravitate. And so I have seen players change by being in an environment, but I do think that one of the most critical things is once again, when you're making personnel decisions, staff, players, There has got to be an alignment. And 
my staff has been really, really critical because I brought my entire staff with me from Presbyterian. And that was very critical in turning around App State because there's true alignment. Because there's different ways to do it. You know, that's the beauty of it. And there are, we're going to be all right. For example, Pat Riley, one of the greatest coaches of all time, he's not about the process. He's about looking in the future. He's about putting that picture of that ring up. And he's about talking about the future. And you know what? It works. Bill Belichick's the complete opposite. And guess what? It works. He's about process. Don't talk about the Super Bowl. I'll find you. But that's the beauty of it. You've got to be yourself. And it's got to be communicated. This is what's important. And as long as your staff is aligned with that, which is very critical, but it's your job as the head coach to get everybody aligned. And discussions are healthy. I love it. But when you all walk out that door, there's got to be alignment. And my staff is really, really good about that in the sense like they do a good job of, quote, weeding the garden is what we call it. And that's really, really critical in turnaround a program, too, is that the people with you, they got to help you weed the garden. They got to be the maybe the one after a workout, be like, hey, remember, this is what we're about. And I just think that some of that stuff is also critical to getting everybody aligned. Coach, we've talked a lot about communication and the role that establishing a culture plays. I'm also curious about the role of goal setting. Are you having conversations with the team about goals for this upcoming season, your turnaround season? And if so, I guess realistic success looks different for every team at every stage of their program. And is there a danger too of maybe setting goals with a team that's had a culture of losing? Yeah, Pat, I think that once again, we're all different and it all works. It's just kind of what you believe in. I'm not a goal guy because I think that it's sometimes what if you don't meet the goal? And so we've just got some standards that we live by. We just want to be about those standards. And that's trying to get better every day. That's being hungry and humble. That's being you know competitive. That's it's certain behavior traits. Now, I'm not a real patient person in the sense like I don't go into a program and say, hey, we're going to do this in year one and we're going to do this in year two and year this in three. Through those lunches, through those private meetings, I've asked, not told, I've asked each player to believe that it can be turned around now. And here's why I think it can be turned around. So all I'm asking is have a belief and have a sense of trust and buy-in that you can be a part of the turnaround now. That just so you all hear from me as the head coach, I don't have this four-year plan or this goal for year one or year two. We want to turn around now, but just understand it's going to be hard. It's going to be some challenges. And so just believe in what we're doing. So those are the things that I think that maybe have quote, become a goal is instead of goals, it's been conversations and communication with the team is our goal is to turn it around now. And then at the goal, like, I don't want to say it's a goal for this year's team, but like we've had now three straight winning seasons at App State for the first time since 1997, back-to-back postseasons for the first time ever in a hundred years. And so I don't use the word goal, but the message now is, can this group continue the winning ways and not let the program dip back? Can this group potentially take it to another level? What's the group that's going to kind of meet the moment? And so without using the word goals, but once again, we're all different. You just kind of be yourself. And that I just think for me, that messaging, I'm just more comfortable with. Coach, your turnaround season, your first season with App State, how important, and maybe these were these discussions with your staff, the start of the season and starting and basically winning early in the season, I don't think validates the right word, but just for your guys and to build kind of what you've been working on in the preseason with the individual improvement, 
the culture, how important was then winning early and not starting, let's say one in five, and then maybe we lose guys? Well, I'll tell you a true story. Our first game at App State was at Michigan. Juwan Howard's first game, who I think is an outstanding coach. We got down by, I think, 28 points. We came back in the second half. We were down 28 in the second half. We came back in the second half, and I think we cut it to two or three and actually had an opportunity to win at the end of the game. I think we lost by six or seven. And I'll never forget, we're walking in the locker room, and we had a guy who had been in the program. He was a senior, and he was really, really positive, which I appreciated and liked. But the messaging was, hey, guys, like, look at what we just did. We just came back. like, And there was almost a sense of gratitude, almost a sense of we finally competed. We did come back. And I simply just said, hey, like, I appreciate your comments, but I want you all to know that that's not my expectation. My expectation is not to come here and just compete. My expectation is to win. So there's a lot of growth. There's a lot of opportunities. Loss stands for learning opportunities. Stay strong. And so let's all understand in this locker room right now that I'm not satisfied with coming back and, quote, competing against Michigan. We came here to win. I remember getting some texts for some people at App State because they liked what they saw in the sense of just fight and grit. My simple text back was, it's not good enough. We came here to win. And so in the same sense, I think that once again, communication and clearly defining and explaining in a true and authentic tone that's not negative. And in a sense, just real talk that, hey guys, we're all in this together. But also, you know, Pat, I, I want to share this too. We still do it every year. Ever since I've been a head coach, I take our program into a classroom of four times in the preseason leading up to games. And we study on Saturday. So we're going to a classroom on a Saturday morning and we study individuals and programs that win and why they win. So now you talk about the exercise we did before. Now, as we get close to season, I'm flipping the messaging. Let's study people that win. And sometimes it's been other examples of programs that have maybe turned things around. And the criteria for the individuals that we study is they have to be part of a team championship at some point in the career. And we watch interviews and we have a notebook and we literally study and we go around the room and they have to answer five questions. And we literally go around the room and ask and share your thoughts on it of a question of why and this, that, and the other. And what it really does is, one, they don't like getting up on Saturday morning, but like they also, they end up loving it, especially the ones that you want it to be about that are really getting into it. But it really helps them understand and it gives them true perspective that, wow, that story was amazing. Tom Brady was picked in the eighth round. They don't realize that. And so like as coaches, sometimes you just assume that they understand why Steph Curry is so successful, but he went to a school, Davidson, that at the time was in the same conference as App State. But why is Steph Curry so successful? They just see what they see on TV. But now we found interviews of teammates, interviews of him, and peeling back the onion like, this is what he's really about. This is why he's successful. And then I do a lot of just I call them bedtime stories. You know, we were all little kids. You, you know, you had your little bedtime stories, right? And they're quick little five to 10 minute. It's called bedtime stands for blame no one, expect nothing, do something. We've got one today. Little bedtime story. You know what? Our guys be excited because they know it's five minutes and it could be basketball, it could be non-basketball, 
but it's just quick little perspectives of the why. One thing we try to do a good job is like really clearly explaining why we're doing what we're doing. And I know that bit of being a long answer to your question, but like we start changing the messaging to understand like, okay, well, let's study why people went. Let's study why these people, these people that you admire, now you realize their journey wasn't peaches and ice cream. Their journey was hard. Their journey, they had fight. Let's understand like, what did you learn from this? And so maybe when you're having a bad day, you saw that Damian Lillard's got some bad, like everybody sees Alabama football. Well, does everybody see the work that they put in? Does everybody see the standard that they're held to? Probably not. Let's look at it. Let's look at, if you want what they've got, let's understand why they got it. And let's like, let's really dive into it. And you know what? They enjoy it. We're working on some new ones this year. Every year we kind of switch some stuff up. Like we studied Virginia a couple of years ago of how they had arguably the biggest upset in March Madness history to 12 months later winning the whole thing. How did they do that? And we watched interviews with their players and we saw that it took time. But guess what? Their response to adversity is a learning moment. And what you end up having is you have these team conversations that maybe you would have in the middle of the year after you have a tough moment. You're already having them. They're proactive conversations. And I just think that what I'm trying to really, really share is when you take over a program that has not been successful, it takes time. And it takes a lot of those good days will add up, but it takes a lot of messaging. It takes a lot of getting people to really believe and understand like, you know what? Wow, I'm watching that. That could be us. I'm passionate about it because as a coach, sometimes it's fun. It's fun to see people and teams do something that they never thought they could do. You know, I still talk to some of our former players at Presbyterian here and like, they're so proud of what they were able to be a part of the turnaround. Like they're proud to have their era be known that they turned it around. And that makes me proud as a coach, but it's a process. It takes time. We're excited to partner with one of our favorite new analytics platforms, Hoopsalytics, a high powered, affordable, and easy to use video and analytics system for coaches of all levels at a fraction of the price of some of the other platforms available. Unlike other systems, Hoopsalytics lets you create fully customizable events and sets and analyzes them for you through video link stats, interactive shot charts, and other tools. Zero programming is required. For a free trial and to receive a 25% discount on the product, visit hoopsalytics.com slash glass. That's hoopsalytics.com slash glass. And now back to our conversation. Coach, love all the thoughts on this. And I want to stay on this conversation, but just pivot slightly within it. A little like more on the court with the turnaround and a little bit of the tactical part of it. Because like, as you know, uh, as we talked about a little bit before, just building this stuff off the court is so much time. But then once you get onto the court, your style and the way you play and the way you coach can also influence their belief in turning things around and how you all play. So can you speak a little bit about how the tactical part of this comes into the turnaround. Yeah, I think that for me, I'm always going to be married to our players more than my system. And so I think that coming in, there's a, everybody's got a fresh part. There's an evaluation and we play positionless basketball. And so I'm never boxing a player into a number. I don't really want them to be a number. I want them to be players. And so 
it also helps with the buy-in because now they know that our coach doesn't view me as a four. And so I just got to be, I'm one of two, three people that play the four. And so this is, no, he views me as a player. And so it helps the buy-in when you're trying to turn around a program because you're not boxing them in. You're not, but it's true. And so now we're developing to just be basketball players because from a basketball standpoint, especially offensively, we play a positionless basketball. We play off concepts. And so we really try to teach our players how to play and then we let them play. And so once again, you're trying to build fun and equity and they have fun with that. And so it helps the process of buying in. I think that everything that we just talked about off the court, there has to be the same level on the court. Where in the sense like he just says I'm a five and no, we don't have numbers. And so now they're really starting to buy in because it's like, wow, they get on the court, they could see it. It's like, wow, like I literally am just five out positionless basketball. Coach doesn't really see me as this, you know, hasn't put me in a box. And I think that that's important too, as you're taking a program, because I felt like that now if you recruit and it's okay, if you have a system that you quote, we have a one a two and three and four, like. Once again, that's been very successful for a lot of people. That just doesn't fit me and hasn't fit the situations because at both places, we got to get the right talent. And in order to do that, we can't just recruit a quote number, a two or a one, because that takes time. And so it's like, hey, we just want the right talent, the right player, the person about the right stuff. We're going to develop them and then we're going to let them play. And that has helped in this process because players are really bought into that. Like literally, we got a player this year, and he's literally played all five spots. He has literally played. I mean, it's positional basketball, but like he's brought the ball up. He's been involved in ball screens. He set ball screens. Like it is true, like, you know, evolution type. And because we never boxed him in one time when he was a freshman, he's developed and really expanded his game and bought into that. Everything that we talk about and everything that I listen and everything that I look at your stuff every day, the thing that as coaches, and we can take the pin and we can draw, draw up the biggest side out of bounds player. It all works. The main part of any of it is getting your players to buy into it because that's the beauty of basketball. There's a lot of different ways to win, a lot of different ways. And that's the beauty of it. That's, I think that's sometimes as coaches, what messes us up. Like, Ooh, this, this, this. Like it doesn't matter if your players are not believing in it and bought into it. Coach, if we can just dive a little bit deeper on the way you play in this positionless five-out basketball, because it obviously, I think, is becoming more and more popular, but there are nuances to teaching it. And you mentioned you just teach your guys to play in concepts. So I'd just be curious, like, if you want to play positionless five-out, what are, like, the baseline concepts that when you get in the gym with your guys on an official practice that, hey, we got to start working on this in order just to build our offense from there? Yeah, I think that we really try to play to our players' strengths. And you really got to start there. And so, for example, closest person takes the ball out for us. Now, we might designate two, some people that don't take it out. And so we'll start with everybody can take it out, but we want you two guys to just run the floor because we just don't maybe see that as a strength. Now, some of it we want to develop, but it is true, like play to your strengths and while also developing. But because we don't have numbers, transition defense, we have get back guys and crashers. So as a coach, I have to live with, sometimes we might have four crashers. Sometimes we might have four get back guys. That isn't based off of numbers. It's based off their strengths. Like you might have a guard that's just super athletic and you know what, man, we need to let this guy crash and be sneaky in there because we don't have numbers because it isn't three, four, five crash and one, two back. We don't have numbers. So like we can't do that. 
And so my point is like evaluating your team and their strengths. And as a coach, you've got to be able to live with different lineups out there. And I'm okay with that. But in the same sense in the offensive, we really let people for months kind of do everything. And then when we really, really start getting to quote installing is we really spend a lot of time with, all right, these 11 guys can take it out. These two needs to need to run. These four or five guys can bring it up. In the same sense, in transition offense, like off of a miss, we've got right now, I don't know, eight or nine different people that have the, if they get a rebound, they can just bring it. Now, once again, we just literally have guards and bigs. And so our bigs, if they bring it off of a rebound, they're looking to do a certain action. Our guards are looking to do a certain action. And so some of that's just based off their strengths. Now, over time, people's quote concepts can change. We've had some change this year. Because we just feel like they've developed. And sometimes as a freshman, hey, let's not overload their mind. Let's just keep it simple. And so I just think that everything is really individualized. Like we've got certain part of our concepts that this one player can do because he's just, he's a unique player. And like I said, I talked about, we got a guy that can come off wall screens. We got a guy that can settle. And what it does, it just, I'm just married to our players again, not our system. And because of the five out and the way it's designed, but then that just really fits us and what we're trying to do, it allows you to kind of play that way. But I remember when I first became a head coach of Presbyterian, I said, listen, we got to just get the best players, the right players. We're going to be positionless. I don't ever want to box myself in as a coach. I don't ever want to say, hey, golly, I really want to play Dan right now, but he doesn't know the four. He just knows the two and the three. I never have to coach that way. I don't want to coach that way. I don't want to be able to put someone in, but I can't put them in because they don't know a, a number. I'm going to put in a crasher or a get back guy and he can take the ball out. Of it. Like, here's the concepts and we let you play through really simple terminology. And it's allowed us to also turn around a little bit quicker as well, because I think players really buy into that. And most importantly, they have fun with it. You know, we all play basketball when we were kids. I always ask them this. Why did you play? Number one answer never changes. It was fun. I said, well, when you're 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, why should it not be fun? It has to be fun. It's a game. Otherwise, let's not play it. And so that's why we played it when we were five and six, because we loved it. It's fun. It's a game. That can't change now. And I think that this is a fun style to play in the sense like, and sometimes it's adapts. Sometimes it'll change throughout the season. Like, man, like this guy could become a, once again, we just got terms and our players know, and it's worked so far. Coach, kind of on that note, the role of terminology and Maybe building, obviously building your offense, but keeping, I think within five out, it obviously requires a great amount of energy, a great amount of pace and the role that maybe terminology can play. And when you start to early in the season, when you're building the offense and keeping the ball moving and getting to the second side or getting to another action and avoiding the offense kind of just stalling when guys maybe don't then know what to do next. Yeah, I think that's great. And since like we've just got, I think terminology is very, very critical in any organization, simple terminology, and sometimes unique. Sometimes we think of a maybe a different term because they're not going to forget it. And like we have a term if the ball goes the corner and our players know what to do. We have a term that when a big is that we call home in the sense like that's the top of the key. So at any point I could tell any player, just get to home. They know they got to get to the top of the key, whether it's a term that now they know a big's got to get it home. And so just simple terminology to keep flowing from action to action to action, you know, and, or, Hey, listen, when we say this term means we want the ball here, get the ball to this point. And then we've got 
flow or action out of that. But like this simple thing, like today I could go out there and I could just say a couple terms and literally we could do 15 different things, but just the term either it gets the ball to a certain point where they know to get to, or, you know, can, can create a different type of flow just off of a term. So now your offense can potentially change off of one just term because of the concept and the flow action and the next action. And I think that's the fun of it as a coach is saying a term and now our players know where the, we want to get the ball to. And then once we get the ball to that point, they know the next actions from that and what to do and how to flow off of it. And I think that that's fun for them. And it's, you know, the last thing I want to do as a coach is slow them down. My goal as a coach offensively is to put our guys in a position to allow them to play loose, free, and confident. And it's really hard to play loose, free, and confident when they're thinking too much. Well, so we rep the concepts. This is what a guard does when the ball's here. This is what a big does when the guard ball's here. When we set this certain type of screen, this is what the guard does, and this is what the big does. Or does there's also there's some things with it. It doesn't matter. Everybody's doing the same thing after this action. But as a coaching staff, we're always adapting and evolving. We've kind of tweaked and things every year based off our team. We never put anything in unless we walk through it. And we walk through it on the court, just like a team, as a staff. And we think about the next action and the flow action. And is this going to flow well? Is this going to make sense with this, quote, term? And so can we just say this term and our guys just play out of it? And that's the fun of it. And there's, let me tell you something, there's been many times where we've walked out there and we thought it was going to flow and work easy and it hasn't because we've talked about, well, okay, what if this is situation? You know what? Now they're thinking too much and I don't want that. And so what we try to do is off of a miss, off of a make, how are we flowing? What's the next action? And then what's the concept? And through a simple term, you can almost flip your offenses off of a term. We want to shift now to a segment that we call start, sub, or sit. And so we will give you three different options, ask you to start one, sub one, sit one, and then we'll have a little discussion from there. So coach, if you're all set, we'll dive into this first one for you. I'm nervous. I'm a little, <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I know about this segment and I, uh, I have no idea what you're going to ask, okay. but I'm ready. I'm ready. Coaching is pivoting and adjustments and, and here we go. All right. Well. Let's get right to it then. So our first one is tough screening actions or tough actions not to switch defensively. So you're trying to not switch on the defensive side. And these are three different actions that make it difficult to do that. Or you have to really work through with your team to make sure you can still not switch them, but stay connected. And so your start here would be the toughest. All right, so start, sub, sit, split cuts or split action, ghost screens, or the third option is flare screens. Yeah, I would go ghost. I would start with ghost. I think that it's such an in-between action. It's such an unpredictable action. It's such an action that everyone does a little bit maybe differently. And the flip side, you mentioned flare, like it's kind of a flare screen. Like we know what that looks like. A ghost screen is kind of always done a little bit differently and also the intense done differently. I would start there with that would be the toughest because are they trying to throw it back? Or are you trying to drive it downhill? And where's the angle of it? Where's the ghost coming from? You know, more than likely a flare is going to be set kind of on that wing area, but a ghost screen can set in different parts of the floor and different angles 
And I think that's why it's a difficult switch. And so then thinking the split would be your sub and flares the sit. Yeah, I would go for that. My first question to just dive in. I know we talked a little bit off air just about defensive philosophy and potentially not switching as much, which is not unusual, but you're positionless on the offensive end. But then you've talked about preference to not switch as much as possible on the defensive end. Could you just talk a little bit about that philosophy? Yeah, I just think that we want to create an identity in a team defense in the sense that when we talk about defense with our team, it's we get scored on. We missed the blackout. It's all we and us. And just personally, I think that when you start switching, it can be easy to get away from that quote mentality. And also think defensively, it's just got to be about the team. It's five guys working as one, moving as one. And I just think that also from a coaching perspective, getting the right guys, guarding the right guys is important. And I think that when you're doing some switching, it's easy to get away from that. I'll share a funny story. My first year as a head coach, we're a big game, was not Michigan. This was a Presbyterian. And we were playing an ACC team. And we got called for a foul. And I just thought my guy was playing good defense. And I just asked the official, I said, hey, and I respect officials. I think they do a good job. Some of these guys are my friends. I just said, like, hey, how's he supposed to guard him? How do you want him to guard him? And you know what he said? Because that's a bad matchup. But you know what? He was right. And like we had the wrong guy on the wrong guy. And sometimes in transition defense, yeah, that you don't have a man, so that can happen. But my point is, when you start doing a lot of switching, you can just get sometimes the wrong guy on the wrong guy. And now you're not really a good defensive team based off of just that. And so that's part of my philosophy to not switch as much, but also just think it kind of can evolve away from team accountability. Because now that kind of turns into individual accountability. It's like, well, coach, you, you switched him. You're the one to put him on. Like, that's a bad matchup. Like, what do you want me to do? I'm over. I'm trying to be in help. And so that's part of the philosophy on that. And if we kind of flip back to the three options that we just talked about, we'll just stay with the ghost screens because I know that that's on the top of minds of a lot of coaches. I know scout report, you might change this, but then how do you work on with a ghost screen and you're trying to maybe not switch it, sometimes the easiest thing, I guess, is to switch it if it's early. What are you working on communication-wise, drill-wise, knowing teams are ghost screening to hopefully effectively guard that action? One thing that we has worked for us when we try to defend that sometimes and not switch is we just call it a support. And so you need to assume that he is setting a screen. You need to assume that it's a screen. Let's guard the ball. But once again, let's just start with guarding the ball and support your teammate for one second on that ghost. And so if they do throw it back with a support for a second, we should hopefully be there. But also maybe now they're not getting downhill off the ghost because one, guard the ball. But two, we supported it for a second and we didn't allow it to go downhill. So when we support it, we don't, we slow it down for one second and now we're, quote, we're covering back. And we should be able to recover back off that pass in that airtime. That's the way we've defended the ghost is whether it's a ghost or not. That's the hard thing about it. Like you don't know if it is. It's a difficult thing to guard. Coach, if we can go down this situational rabbit hole, if it's not a ghost, but have you run occasions where teams will set guard to guard pick and rolls? How are you handling that? Again, if you don't want to switch the matchups, we will switch that. Okay. There are a couple situations that we will switch. And that is one of them, a guard-to-guard one. And our simple terminology is pocket, touch it, 
switch it. So communicate it, touch, and then switch. Coach, you've historically had great defensive teams towards the top of your conference over the last few years with App State. Love to hear your thoughts on guarding the corner, whether the shooter in the corner or not, help, not help. I know there's a lot of different philosophies, but just your thoughts on guarding the corner. Yeah, I think that for us, this is something that we've been just adapt to is if you give up corner threes on a nightly basis, you're going to be in a tough spot because it's a shot that if you really, really look at statistically is made at a high level, especially it's a catch and shoot. It's probably why, right? Because more players make catch and shoot shots than just shots off the move. So in that corner, it's really a drive and just a simple catch and shoot that the majority of players can make. So in the same sense, we're trying to not allow those up. So when you're guarding someone in the corner, we call it a simple stunt and stay. So you're going to stunt at the drive, but you're not helping. You're staying with the shooter. And our help will come from other areas. Our rotations will come from other areas. And we would rather live with that tough baseline floater too than just a rhythm catch and shoot shot from a guy standing there in the corner. And so if you evaluate as you're going through things, our opponent made nine threes a night. Where were they from? And if there's seven of them in the corners, and imagine if you took those away. But also, what if your offense relies on corner threes? Like for us, five out, we've always got people in the corner. And so we've been able to, I think, win some games because of just simply, and that's not opponent to opponent. It's nine in and nine out. Like, hey, we're trying not to allow you to make corner threes. It's a stunt and stay. Now, are we perfect at it? No. Like every now and then game, like, hey, man, it's a stunt and stay. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Because it's, Everywhere else, there are help responsibilities, but not there. You're guarding out in the corner. Our help's coming from somewhere else. And I think it has really helped us be good defensively, but it's also helped us win some games in the sense they've got to get their threes at other places. In a perfect world, they might get one corner three a game, but we've seen some teams where we try to look at shot chart-wise, like, man, they get a lot of corner threes. They're going to have to get them somewhere else tonight. And certainly when you're rotating and things like that, like there's no perfection. I always tell our guys all the time, like, I don't want you to be perfect. No one's perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm going to make some mistakes. Just fly around and play hard and be active and have multiple efforts is what we call it. And playing hard covers up mistakes. And since if you're flying around as a coach and we're watching the film, we might not really notice you're in the wrong positioning if you're just flying around your active hands and things like that. And so just trying to get that to be a habit. But back to the original question, it's a stunt and stay for us in the corner. Coach, on the rotations, are you working then with your guys on terms of the positioning of when you're in rotation, how you're closing out in terms of taking away corners when you close out or defending the passing lanes to keep the ball out of the corner when your team is in rotation? Yeah, we're not trying to keep it out of the corner. Now, we are working on rotations with people in the corners. And so if there is a slot drive, where does that help come from? And what are the rotations out of that? We're not denying the corners. What we're simply working on is if I'm guarding someone that's in the corner, they should not get a catch and shoot shot off because I am not helping. I'm stunting, but I am staying with the guy. And so if there is a pass there, then I should be there on the catch. And so there is no, quote, recovery. We don't believe that you can help and recover in college basketball. We think you can only recover in the sense of the game's too fast. There's too many good players to help and recover. So we teach our players to be in the help and there's one movement to just recover. And so if I'm guarding someone in the corner, I'm already in here. I'm stunting maybe with my hand, but all I've got to do is recover. It's not my job to stop that drive. It's someone else's drive. 
where somewhere's on the different parts of the floor, I might have to help stop that drive because I'm in my help position. We talk about a lot of times defensively, we can always guard another pass. And when that pass happens, they might fumble it. They might be a bad pass and allow us that second to recover. But like, we can always guard another pass. Make them give it up. Make them pass it. Make them play in a crowd. But when you're guarding someone in the corner, I'm not helping. Like literally, they can drive right past you. And if they pass it to the guy in the corner, which it's one against not a deny, but it shouldn't seem like it's open. We're there on the catch. We're not allowing a rhythm shot from that corner. Our next start subset for you, coach, has to do with when you have an underperforming three-point team. So you have competent three-point shooters. You're just not making them at a great rate or not making enough. So things that you would look at are the biggest culprits of why your team is underperforming at the three-point line. So start subset, the shot selection, the shot location, or the ability to generate threes after a paint touch, or rather your inability to basically collapse the defense and get kickout threes. Yeah, I would start with that one, the, the ability to paint to great. We call it paint to great. And then I would go to shot selection. And then lastly, I would go shot location. So my follow-up coach is, I think it, it's always a conversation we're interested in, is just shot selection and what you talk or preach or how you emphasize what is a good shot and what is maybe a shot that we can hunt for a better one. There is one shot police in the App State program. In the sense, I'm going to be the only person in this program that's going to talk about what a good shot is or a bad shot. And everybody in our program and my staff knows, because I think when you're coaching shot selection, one thing you can have is everybody's different opinion of a shot. And now you're really into a player's head about, man, I thought coach said that was a pretty good shot. Coach so-and-so didn't think it was a good shot. And so I rarely ever talk about shot selection. To me, it's really more about the time and score. It's more about the situation. What could be a shot at this point may be a not a good shot because of the time. Maybe we haven't scored in three times down the court. And so now the situation's different. And so maybe now that is not a good shot because, listen, we need a bucket. We don't need to shoot that shot. We haven't scored in three times. Once again, there could be a term for that. It could be a simple term that you yell out that just says, hey, get to the basket, drive it, like stop settling. We need a different type shot. It'd be just a simple term you say. But I think every player is different. I think you got to learn your players. Like some guys, you just got to let them be, right? And some guys like have a free sense of mind where, you know what? They don't think about that last shot. You know what? That's good. Since like, you know what? That's a good shot for him because it's a rhythm shot and that might help him get going. Some guys might need, hey, let's find a better one. And so I just think that as a coach, less is more with shot selection. Because you've got to let players play. One thing you don't want them to do is thinking about, oh, what's is this a good shot or a bad shot? We've had 15 practices right now. I think I've talked about shot selection in one of those. And it was because of a situation. Hey, this particular shot, we guys, we were playing a situation. We were up five. Like, let's talk about this shot. So I'm not telling you to not shoot it. All I'm saying is let's understand the situation. I really think sometimes... How many times as a coach, we've seen a guy going there and man, they're just ripping the net off, ripping the net off. And then when the game, they maybe just, because when they get in the game, they're overthinking too much. Like what's a good shot, bad shot. But they got too many people in their head. Like, Hey man, shoot it, shoot it, shoot it. I don't really overcoach that. I think that as coaches, you've got to be really, really careful not to overcoach. And I don't overcoach shot selection because I want guys playing loose, free and comp. And you may watch film of us sometimes and be like, good gosh, Amadi, what kind of shot is that? Right? You know what? Man, 
I'm going to let that kid be who he is. And you know what? I've seen enough and I've got enough data to know that, man, he's made that shot. And for him to make it at that moment, he needs to be able to shoot that. And, you know, those are based off of a lot of data and a lot of statistics and a lot of just conversations about like, we've got really kind of one rule on offense. Don't hold it. So shoot it, drive it or pass it. But if you're open and let it fly, we talk about this too. Let's get an advantage and let's keep an advantage. So along your lines of, you know, getting to the paint, hey guys, we're not getting an advantage enough. Like for example, let's say we're not, you know, shooting well. It's because we're not getting an advantage. So let's get an advantage, which means get to the paint, and then let's get a more of an open shot. But that's why I started with that one in a sense because it probably just means that we're just not getting an advantage. Hey, get an advantage, get downhill. And then let's get a better shot. Coach, you're off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. Just oh. go through those guys. <laughs> so we've got one more question for you to wrap up. Thank you very much for your time today. This was yeah. a really fun conversation for us. Guys, thanks you so much. Once again, much respect for the job that you all do with growing the game of basketball. And it's genuine. It's authentic. I love it. I look at it every day. This is one of the sites and things that I literally view every day. And I love it. And I always pick up great stuff. You guys are innovative. I recommend it to all coaches. I got one question for you guys. All these sites and stuff, right? Like there's all these basketball sites and names. And uh, where where did Slapping Glass come from? How did you come up with the name? (laughs) I have seen about all of them, right? If you look at all these basketball sites, sometimes it's a term like that. I always think it's interesting, but like it's unique. And when you say slapping glass and basketball, like that's the first thing I think about. Well, where did the name come from? Came from our inability to dunk a basketball coach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was just a fun, before our very, very first time we ever tried to do a video way, way back, we couldn't come up with a name. And I said to Pat, I was like, hey, I got all these ideas. And I said something like, hey, slapping backboard. And Pat just said slapping glass. We both started laughing and we yeah. thought, that's it. It was kind of catchy. That was the happy accident that became the name. That's great. You know what? When we're coming up with terminology for our program, those conversations are just as identical. Like, hey, what do we call this quote family of things that mean this? And and sometimes it takes a little bit longer than it should, but that's a great story. I'm glad I know the original. (laughs) Before we close, last question we ask all the guests is, what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? I think there's probably many layers to that question. The first thing that comes to mind is my wife. Like, this is a profession that you just cannot do at home. There's certain professions that you can just work from home. This one's not one of those. You've got to go recruit. You've got away games. You've got practices. You've got an army of people to manage. And so I'm not trying to be in the basketball hall of fame. I want to be in the dad hall of fame. And I've got two kids, but like, there's no way I could do what I do at the level that I feel like I need to do it at without a incredible wife and partner and foundation at home who is just as all in and invested, right? Like just this morning, she was texting me. She's writing. She Every year she writes the mothers of all of our players a handwritten note. I don't ask her to do that. I just think like in coaching and in life, if you are striving and trying to invest in both, you want a family, you want a coach, you've got to you know, really get the right partner. And 
that's just the first thing I thought of when you asked me that question is the greatest quote investment. I mean, my wife, Brittany, is just a rock star in the sense of just in the community and with our kids, with our players, with donors, with support. And I think that that was just the first thing that came to my mind. Because like I said, I think that, man, as a coach, sometimes there's so much on your mind, so many things. And a spouse can either help that or hurt it. In a sense, when you come home at night, if the spouse is trying to, you know, maybe adding fuel to the fire and she is incredible about positivity and just really not knowing everything going on and not wanting to know everything. And that's so, so critical, I think, in coaching, because I think that sometimes like if I came into work today and my spouse had got me all worked up about something, whether it's on or off the court, well, this player or that administration or this fan, or this is what they're saying about you. Like, that's not good, right? I'll wrap it up with this. For those wanting to be head coaches, okay, I get asked this a lot of times. They're like, what's it like to be a head coach? And you don't really know until you're a head coach, right? Just like being a dad, you don't really know until you're actually a dad, which is the greatest job of all time. But being a head coach is like sitting at the ocean and there's waves coming all day. The waves are not stopping. You, you can sit there and get your little beach chair and you get your little umbrella and the waves are coming in. The waves are going to keep coming in. They're not going to stop. The ocean is never just going to stop with the waves. That's what a head coach is like in the sense you come into work and all of a sudden there's a new wave. They're not going to stop. They're not going to stop. Whether it's recruiting, whether it's donor relations, whether it's something on campus, whether it's facilities, there are waves every day, all day. It's how do the people around you not put you on unnecessary waves? And my wife doesn't do that. And I'm so thankful and appreciative of her in so many ways that she's an incredible mother and wife. She doesn't put me on unnecessary ways, which allows me to try to do my job at a better ability. And that was a great investment proposing to her. And thank goodness she said yes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping back or <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>